This is Grace Talks, a production of Simpson United Methodist Church in Bangor, Michigan. Thank you, Jean. I'm sure the children enjoyed that today. And now we will read from the scripture, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, the Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chiefs, priests, and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. <clears throat> then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Look, I'm back to normal. So I'm going to do something strange in this sermon. I know that's a surprise. This sermon, someplace other than where, than, or someplace other than the text we read today. I want to begin in Matthew 22 where we find one of Jesus's many parables, this being the parable of the wedding banquet. The kingdom of God, Jesus says, is like a wedding banquet. A king is throwing a feast to celebrate his son's wedding, and he sends out servants to go and spread the news to the people who had been planned to be invited. They were told to go and deliver the message, saying, Dinner is prepared. My oxen, my fatted calves have been slaughtered, and everything is prepared. But those who received the invitations made light of it, and they went away, some to do their jobs, others to do their business, while still others seized the messengers who came to them and killed them. The king, having heard of the rejection of the invitation, sent for those guests to be killed. He sent for their cities to be burned. 
And he said to his surviving servants, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were unworthy. And so go into the main streets and invite everyone you find to the feast. And so they went out and spread the word. And in time, the hall was filled with guests. In a sense, this is what the passage today is touching on. A king is throwing a mighty feast and the invited guests refuse to come. And what I mean by that is that the kingdom of God, the beloved community, is an offered way of life, a invitation that we all receive. And yet, for one reason or another, people keep ignoring it. People busy themselves on matters of life and work and business and money, the provocation of wars and a great many other things. They pursue things that are contrary to the community that we are called to live in. An obvious connection is the people of Israel, and this is one of Christ's constant refrains throughout the gospel. The people have ignored the messengers. They have not only ignored the messengers, but they have often killed the messengers. They've rejected and they've killed the prophets, and the people have been led towards death rather than life. The one-to-one -one analogy for these murdered servants in the passage in the parable, well, they're the prophets, they're the messengers, they're the announcers of the coming of the kingdom of God. The parable tells us how the king intended to invite the guests to the feast and the guests ignore the message. And so the king throws open the gates and invites everyone in. One of the most central and reoccurring themes of the gospel is that of greater inclusion. Someone new is always being invited in. The charge Jesus lays out to the people is that the people have killed the prophets, the people have ignored the messengers, the people have rejected their invitation. And so because some have rejected their invitation, the invitation becomes greater. Because the original recipients refused to come, the gates have been thrown wide open and all are welcomed. When we take this message of inclusion, of invitation, and consider it further, we might then look at the message of the Magi, the men who were invited by the star, and we might begin to see the passage a little bit differently. When it comes to the stories of the birth of Jesus Christ, there are two distinctly different versions. There's the version of Matthew and there's the version of Luke, and both of them have their own unique flavors, their own unique taste. Some might go as far as to call them discrepancies between the two stories, but in reality, these discrepancies shouldn't bother us too much if we refrain from reading the Gospels as history and read them more as 
well, history in the way the people who wrote them understood history. And so while Luke speaks of shepherds and censuses of prophets in the womb and the temple courts witnessing to the good news of Jesus' birth, the Gospel of Matthew speaks of magi and uncomfortably the systematic murder of children. The difficulty comes when we become so fixated on pushing the two gospel stories together that we end up sacrificing the message that either gospel is attempting to offer. The Epiphany, which we celebrate today, is one of those instances where we've given the story where we've given the story certain characteristics that don't actually appear in the text. What's happened is that we've combined the two stories of Matthew and Mark or Matthew and Luke so much that we've confused ourselves as to what the text says. We've turned a quiet night into a messy and crowded one where magi and shepherd press in on one another while a young boy bangs his drum incessantly in a new mother's face. Mothers in the audience, let me just say that as a man, I can't imagine anything worse than having to go through the long hours of childbirth only to then be surrounded by a dozen guests when, let's face it, you just want to sleep. Epiphany, though, the visit of the Magi, contains a different message than the visit of the shepherds. When we combine the two, we have the tendency to miss the importance of either one. While the shepherds in Luke tell us that the kingdom is firstly for the lowest among us, the magi of Matthew tell us that it is for those who are on the outside of the supposed selected group. To take it further, what we find when we look at the Magi from the East is that much of what we often repeat in our stories is probably wrong. And so in honor of it being a new year, I have something everyone hates, an interactive sermon. And so if you're inclined, pull out your bulletins, if you have a pen, if you have a writing utensil, and use that empty space that kids like to doodle on to write down your answers. Or if you don't have a pen, just think of it in your head. It's up to you. <laughs> so I have four questions for us. One, how many wise men were there? Write it down or think of it in your head. <laughs> this isn't a test. You're not being graded, just to let you know. So don't get nervous. I'm going to use this opportunity to take a drink of water. Two, when did the wise men arrive? Three, where was the holy family when the wise men arrived? And four, who were the wise men?
never know how long to give for you all to write down answers, so I'm just going to press on. <laughs> Answer time. How many wise men were there? What was that? Doesn't say? It does not say. We don't know. <laughs> the text presented doesn't give us the answer to how many wise men there were. We are told of three gifts. We are told they bring gold and frankincense and myrrh, but we're not told how many people are actually carrying these gifts. And so while the dominant tradition that we work with says that there are three, some traditions, such as the Orthodox tradition, says that there were as many as 12 present. Question two, when did they arrive? A while. <laughs> Again, the dominant traditions of our pageants and movies would place them there the night of the birth. So that, again, the magi are pushing in against the shepherds to get in and get a look at the kid. But we don't actually know specifically how long it was, but we can determine that it wasn't the night of the birth. And we can tell that it probably wasn't even Jesus' first year of life. The text tells us that Herod orders the execution of children to and under in accordance to the star's first appearance and so if we are to assume the star was first seen when Jesus was born, then we might guess that Jesus was around the age of two when the Magi arrived. Three, where were Mary, Joseph, and Jesus at the time? Again, we're given an image of the wise men sitting at the stable, surrounded by sheep and other animals, but the text tells us that they arrived in the home of Mary and Joseph. Suggesting that in the book of Matthew, at least, the family was living in Bethlehem and moved to Nazareth later. And finally, who were the wise men? In Babushka and the Three Kings, obviously they were described as kings. And the word we often use are wise men, but who were the wise men? Well, the wise men, or the magi, were most likely what are known as Zoroastrian priests. And Zoroastrianism, which is a fun word, Zoroastrianism remains one of the world's oldest religions, and it dates back to sometime in the 5th century BC. These Zoroastrian priests were the men of science of their day. They were astronomers who studied the stars and read the signs in ways that we can only play pretend in our modern society. These were the men who would really get excited by seeing the new telescope that was just put up on Christmas Day. So the long and short of it, the reason that I did this little game for us, other than a bit of entertainment, was that this is to say that these, these weren't Jewish men. These weren't kings. These were certainly not Christian men. In fact, the only king who shows up in the story is the king who is waiting, who is wanting Jesus' head. 
And meanwhile, the Jewish people aren't looking for a Messiah who looks like Jesus. They're looking for a ruler. These Magi were not members of the faith group that Jesus belonged to, and yet they were the first to come and pay respect. The world, our nation, our cultures push us towards this sense of tribalism, towards claiming who is in our club and who is out of our club. And yet, when we come to read a story like this with the Magi appearing, what we find is that the message of the kingdom is something different. We're all one family. We are all welcome. We are all included. And when those who receive the initial invitation don't show up or don't have interest, the doors are thrown open and everyone is invited in. And the truth of the danger for the prophets and the messengers is the same today as it was then, that being a messenger, being an announcer of the kingdom of God is dangerous because powers and rulers and authorities, well, they don't respond well to a message of a different kingdom. At least not, at least not a kingdom with any real power or authority. Power, after all, needs someone to blame. It needs a scapegoat. It needs a villain. It needs an enemy. It needs someone to other. But when this message of another kingdom comes in that says that maybe there is no other, well, power doesn't respond well. And I say specifically, messengers of a kingdom with authority are threatened because power is willing to accept a message of another kingdom as long as that kingdom plays no real role in the world, as long as that kingdom remains metaphorical. But as soon as the other kingdom infringes on the world we live in, as soon as it infringes on the status quo, then the messenger of that kingdom is in danger. And so messengers like Joel Osteen is under no real threat because the kingdom he speaks of is separate enough from the world that we live in so that it doesn't incur the wrath of the powers that be. But a messenger like Martin Luther King Jr. with a message of a kingdom that directly influences the world that we live in, well, he doesn't get to live to a Betty White age. He has to be watched. He has to be killed. The truth is that we're still killing the prophets. The message of the kingdom of God, the message of the beloved community, the message of Jesus Christ is a message of inclusion. It is a message of peace in a violent world. It is a message of the cessation of hostilities. The message of Jesus Christ is a message that, provide, that spells out a death of an eye-for-an-eye eye mentality and instead births a world of forgiveness, grace, and love. But again, what we find in this passage is that the price of such a message pays a steep. The price such a message is steep. 
Christ, the King, who proves all power to be nothing, meets power, and power responds in the only way it can. Power does what it always does when it meets someone who preaches a different kingdom. It orders them to be killed. We didn't get to it today, but the reason the wise men head home by a different route is because Herod plans to kill Jesus. He orders the slaughter of the innocent, and all the children in Bethlehem, two age, two years and younger, are described as being killed by Herod's soldiers. When power meets Christ, it seems that power will inevitably attempt to crucify and exterminate and silence. But the message of the epiphany is the same now as it was then, and that is that the message of the gospel, the message of the kingdom, the message of the beloved community is at hand, and its doors are wide open. Amen.